Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. David, do you have any capacity for conversations that are not meant? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I fear that I may have too much capacity for such conversations. <laughs> oh, you have... take too much joy in such uh, double talk. So you have the <laughs> opposite problem. I think so, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> well... Yeah, I lo- I love you know innuendos and <laughs> and veiled uh, threats. Okay, yeah, right. I didn't I didn't really think about innuendo. Don't know if I could live without that. Actually, <laughs> it could be difficult for you. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what would be not met. But I don't know. Does Hank not have a sense of humor? Is innuendo the only sense of way to have a sense of humor? No, no. I mean, because he's the one who is. Yes. That's who it's being Who's described saying, of. Yeah. That he has no capacity for conversations. That are unmeant. That are un- Well, perhaps innuendo can be meant and therefore doesn't violate this rule for Hank. Mm. <laughs> I like that establishment of the thought. <laughs> That's a good title of something. Innuendo that is meant. <laughs> yeah. Well, usually they are, I guess. Yeah. Otherwise. <laughs> True. <laughs> they wouldn't be pun intended. Yes. Welcome to part two of Atlas Shrugged. We are diving back into the behemoth, into the, what, what would it be, the, the howling, raging, swirling abyss of the maw of Atlas Shrugged. That, that terrible creature that stalks the night. <laughs> yeah. I know we complained about it last time, but I was just thinking about it in, in the interim since we recorded the last episode, and this book takes a lot out of you to ingest to read because like you said i think you mentioned last time the font is tiny yeah (laughs) it's a small well the the version we have it it looks like uh, kind of your your average fantasy novel size like kind of like one of the wheel of times books only bigger and then you look at the printing and it's even smaller than wheel of time yeah like like if if the if the if the font size was something more like a normal book it would be like 1500 pages yeah (laughs) it's crazy you couldn't have it that small then (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly so i don't know i have an intense ambivalence about (laughs) this book because of an intense kind of oh i'm exhausted from atlas shrugged like it's it's a book that exhausts me and i'm love talking about it it's so interesting but i know it's also a conversation that exhausts me right because it's like the edge of everything yeah well <laughs> i mean figuring out how it's, to it's one of those philosophies that's trying to encompass every human decision right yeah. so and in the t- modern world yeah and that those tend to be exhausting although as you pointed out not our modern world. no that's a hilarious hilarious part i mean it's 
because of the technology focused on and Alice shrugged, it's very dated. Yes. yes <laughs> it's exactly. all it's all railroads and steel and copper and mining, yeah. basically. So if you for some reason haven't listened to part one, um, I would recommend you do because we spend a lot of that episode talking about the tenets of objectivism, which is the underlying philosophy of Ayn Rand that she's portraying in this book. We talk a lot about Dagny, the main character of the book, and kind of just all of the motifs wrapped up in Alice Shrugged and Ayn Rand in general. So if, if you wondering why we're not <laughs> there's also a plot rundown in that book in that episode so listen to that because it's a book you shouldn't read because <laughs> it's way too fucking long <laughs> so don't do we're it not expecting everyone to read it yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah listen to that one if you're not sure what we're talking about in this one i could almost everything we're talking about today will not make sense to you if you listen to part two first <laughs> yeah so just don't do that go back and listen to part one so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk also about hank who's the kind of co-main character of the book, Hank Reardon. And then we're going to talk through some of the other main characters in the book to both strong ones and weak ones to to figure out what we think about all of them. And I know we talked a little bit about Hank last time. I mean, I have a character sketch idea, but what do you feel about Hank? Hmm. I will preface it. I, he's my favorite character in the book. Yeah, you and you mentioned that in the last episode. I think... One of the things we find when we kind of reflect on Hank is that he's the most human, maybe besides Eddie, the most human character in this book. Yeah. Because he does seem to still have some attachment to the rest of society, of people, of of communities that he's a part of. And I liked uh, something you pointed out that I wanted to kind of riff on a bit from uh, our last podcast, which, which is that you said... You said he kind of enjoyed the game of of outsmarting these people who are using force essentially against him. Yeah. And that that was kind of one of his uh, defining characteristics. And I actually think you find this in a lot of, let's say, titans of industry, is that they enjoy the game. Okay. And part of the game is, you know, getting around the regulations. I mean, lawyers, that's their whole lives. Like, that, <laughs> right. that game is the game that they the love The language is sufficiently vague. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> they they want to figure out loopholes and, and mm. strategies. And I guess accountants often do this, too. And I think I have friends who are who love games like uh, Warhammer, and and some uh, most of them are lawyers, and it's because they love the rules, and like right. the whole world is based on these rules of this is you do this, then this happens, you do this, then that happens, and then you can figure out ways to build uh, systems within these rules based worlds that allow you to influence things, right? Mm-hmm. And I I think. Hank isn't a lawyer, obviously, but he has maybe some lawyerly tendencies <laughs> in the fact that he does kind of like to find ways to manipulate the system. Yeah, and he he also seems to not... He doesn't get too bogged down on the fact that he does have to carry everyone else along. Yeah, it just seems like it he's seems like, well, that's just the, the nature of things. Yeah, like, it, it bothers basically every other one of the heroes, except Dagny, I guess. She's a little bit kind of... But she seems less, like, he's like knows he's carrying a burden. Is like, that's okay, I'm okay with yeah, carrying a like, burden. Yeah, like, what else I'm am I supposed to do? Else, right? <laughs> I have Where to. Where she's, like, kind of indifferent to the burdens that yeah. people try to place She doesn't even her. notice that they're there. She just shrugs them off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dagny shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I don't know if I would quite see it as him trying to find loopholes. No, it's just more ways of like, when I say loopholes, it's not like a. I guess the term loophole can often be seen in a negative mm. light, where it's like, right. oh, it's it's not obeying the spirit of the law. Mm-hmm. I mean more like ways to get around or through or over or or you know make irrelevant mm. the obstacles that he faces. Yeah, and I think the other cool part about him is we know he's got an incredibly innovative mind. And that his greatest passion is innovation. And I was just reading an article, uh, shout out to Shamir because he's going to m- make fun of me over text for this, but I was just reading a, uh, <laughs> an article on Elon Musk and uh, he um, he's moved on from Tesla now to focusing primarily on SpaceX. Oh, okay. And his goal is to build an assembly line to build a thousand starships because he, want, he wants to settle Mars, right? A thousand? A thousand, yeah. Like, and uh, it was a really good article. But the point is, that's his passion. Yeah. Right? What he loves is perfecting systems, innovating, building. He's an engineer at heart. Yeah. And, I mean, he likes to say that as well. And I think it, when I think of Hank, I really think, I guess, of an engineer, like someone who is passionate about process and discovery and manipulating the laws of reality to mm. produce something new and and exciting. Yeah, and committed to the product and the and the project way more than to anyone who's going to benefit. Yes, from even it. himself. Yeah, yeah. He, he loves he loves building things. Like it's uh, that bridge, right? Which yeah. he doesn't. He helps. Um, Dagny build well, and it's his material. It's his material, which is like a supposedly this impossible bridge. Yeah, reared in metal is this alloy that they use in the book that is so new and innovative and never been used before. Then that all of the people are saying, "Don't do it. It's untried. We need to have our reg. We need to have our, I don't know, scientists come and <laughs> verify it." And they're like, "Well, no, it's good. Our scientists say it's good, and they're not on the." government payroll so so we're just gonna do it yeah and uh they do it and yeah he's clearly made the way he is in the book because of all of our heroes the bad things that happen to hank make me as the reader the most angry of all of the bad things that happen to any of the other heroes can you give me an example of one of those things that the bad things you yeah like the way his family treated him right right or or the way that the shysters were coming in and just so clearly trying to shake him down. Like the legitimate shakedown artists who are coming in with their policy readjustment scenarios and how they're pretending like it's not a thing to deal with. And I guess just it's hard to articulate in a book that isn't very character driven. <laughs> Hank, there's just something about the way he talks and the way he the 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 inner monologue we get about Hank's c- commitment to his industry and his product and his value and the things he's making i had so much empathy with so that when there were all of the people around who were just trying to leech off of him and take him down and make him seem small and pathetic it was frustrating to me in a way that it it's not it wasn't really with the people who were trying to be leeches to Dagny I guess, or to like Francisco, because they didn't seem very bothered by it. And a lot of the inner monologue we get of the other heroes is not quite as human, I think, as Hank's. So there was a there was a, a weird anger I felt for his misfortunes. 
well, with I the think people trying to take advantage of him. Yeah, uh, like I think he's the sympathetic character, right? I don't, you, you don't really feel a lot of, at least I don't feel a lot of sympathy for Dagny because she's more heroic in yeah. a lot of ways. You just think of her as like, there's nothing like really said, taking her down. God, she's godlike. She just keeps encountering things and winning. Yeah. Whereas you do feel a sense of. I think what Ayn Rand wants you to feel in that moment is this the injustice mm-hmm. that is occurring to this character. Right. And because that injustice is kind of what fuels the desire to shrug. Yeah. Right? To get to get rid of <laughs> yeah. uh to get rid of the burdens and the chains that these people are tying him to. Like yeah. his freedom is freeing from his obligations. Yeah. Is probably one of the, the uh, I don't know, the climax of the book. Well, he's the last Titan. I mean, it's funny that, of course, Atlas is a Titan. So we're talking about Titans here, right? As Titans of Industry. Yep. It's yep. such a great... That's a, that's just another clever part of the title. <laughs> yep. yep. Hank is the last Titan to shrug, right? He's the last one in the book. I mean, he might to, he might even be Atlas, right? To, like he's, to, the, yeah. <laughs> he's the last one holding it all together. Yeah. And so we kind of get him the most throughout the entire book of all of the pain like i don't know it's it's not exactly like i'm like oh poor hank you super rich millionaire right. tycoon no no but because of how slanted the perspective of the philosophy of the book is you do feel bad for him yes yeah and i think interestingly well it is why i like Hank the most in the book is we get his psychology more than anybody else. And I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of my tipping. That's my inclination is like, okay, what's going on in the heads of the people. And even our, like the other heroes, John Galton, Francisco, we don't get in their heads very much. Well, we never, I don't think get an internal monologue from either of them. We no. get speeches and conversations, but we don't get any internal monologue. Yeah. We don't get the omniscient narration of what they're thinking, Yeah, which is cool like when we get it with Hank. And so it's funny that you just that uh, uh, I was trying to think, okay, well, Dagny and Hank, you know, they have a, they have a, an affair and they're together a lot in the book and they're basically each other's only friend for a good portion of the book. And that line I started this episode with of um, he had no capacity for conversations that weren't supposed to be meant is just written about him. And that's actually a huge thing that he has in common with Dagny. Yeah, <laughs> they like just frank to yeah, the point. The, to the point. Uh, there's some great lines where Hank, I want you to know I understand my position fully. If you intend to keep your word, don't talk about it. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like that is a Hank, that that portrays him to a T, I think. You know, and it's... What I like about it is it it's a kind of display or... Um, it's uh, an example of what confidence is actually like. Mm-hmm. Because I find that when you're feeling insecure about something, you all often want affirmation from others. Mm-hmm. So, so like, if you, if someone tells you that you're, you're, they're going to do something, but then you're like, are you really going to do it? Like, yeah. that's not actually a doubt in them. So right. much as an insecurity of your, in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's no point of any insecurity with hank when it comes to his business you know he no. he is a he's cutthroat killer but interestingly with his family it's not insecurity that he has for most of the book with his family but it seems to be something more like 
indecision, indifference, and not knowing what they're doing. Like he's he's not on the inside of his family's machinations because he doesn't get their value. Because right? he has no time for these conversations. Yeah, and yet he still has these um, attachments to them. Like it's his mother and his brother and his wife, and all three of them are like caricaturally pathetic. Well, <laughs> I know? think uh, Hank is also used as the kind of symbol for what people who are successful go through when they have leeches attached to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and obviously his brother and his wife, but and- leeches on the inside, like not, not leeches who are approaching them because no. now you're famous. No, the, the, yeah. These aren't, these aren't uh, accolades. These yeah. are literally people who've kind of rode to success with you and yeah. now are, are trying to right. use you and cashing in on socially and familial ties. Yes. Social and familial ties where, well, you have, like, there's, I mean, it's countless times in the book his mom says to him, you have to help Philip. He's your brother and he can't do anything. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's your it's your duty because you can do it and he can't. It's it's so fatalistic, eh? Oh, it's, it's like very it's depressing. Complete, uh fatalism. It's like, and, well, that's just who Philip is. Yeah. And my... And Philip believes that about himself, too. Yeah, and my... I do have a critique of Hank in this that I think, but it's not the critique that Hank's family has of Hank, where it's Hank's like, Hank's family's critique of him is, you don't appreciate what you have, you don't appreciate us, and you don't help us other than it's just a duty. Like, can't you see that we need you? And like, that's a bullshit criticism because they're not even attempting to be equals with him in any way. (laughs) They're not trying to figure out how they can contribute to his life. Because to, to Hank's family, because you can do, you must, and because you can well, that's the do, only way they survive, yeah, and right? because you can do, we won't, right? <laughs> so there's yeah. like that double edge of it, where it's like it, the compunction is on you, Hank, because you can, and because you can, we won't. Like it's yeah. just so sad and pathetic. However, the critique I would lay at Hank. And it's not a big one, but it's something useful to think about is that he's got a line early in the book where he's, I think Francisco, I can't remember, someone's talking to him about the leeches and the people who just are sucking the money and blood and value out of you. And he says, why should, what should we care? We have enough power to carry them along, haven't we? And I get the temptation of such an attitude. It is a lot easier if you're a competent person to just carry other people along rather than deal with it as it were but i actually think like in a final analysis that is an unbelievably condescending attitude to take towards other humans (laughs) do you know what i mean like hank is assuming he just he just agrees with his mom and his brother and his and his wife that they can't do anything and that because they can't they won't even try and he's like well yeah but they need me so whatever i'll just carry them along because i can there's enough power for me to do that that's the criticism I don't think that's the right attitude to take towards people like that. No, because I eventually, if people, I think eventually, if people see you doing that, uh, you're going to keep getting drained, and more and more people will, and then eventually, you're going to just be fed up because yeah. people are just take, 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 and I, I think, I think this is one thing that people don't think about enough. Uh, mm-hmm. Not people like me. 
I this isn't a problem that I tend to have, but I have friends and family who are very giving people. Yeah. And they're yeah, yeah, just yeah. the kind of people That's who are for sure. always <laughs> taking care of others and always helping others. And when you watch someone do that and then they suddenly explode, it's because they haven't set up the right boundaries. They haven't mm-hmm. said to themselves, no, I don't allow people to push me to this point. Yeah, right? to take advantage of me Exactly. Here. I give only what I give freely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is very Randian in a sense, but I, I think it, it, it's <laughs> yeah. a good point, is you should never allow someone to take something from you out of obligation. Right. Because you're never going to actually want to give it to them. Well, and that's clearly, I mean, that's the cash out of the book, is that Hank, one of his big moment is when he just finally does eschew his family he says you're out of here good luck fuck off see if you can survive without (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i'm not gonna actually support you anymore and i also don't think that's quite the right because that's a revenge fantasy right (laughs) yeah that's those people who give 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 and then they're like oh i just they would never survive and then fuck you get out of here like no like no 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 it's that whole, you know, teach a man to fish thing. Mm-hmm. But but I think it's more than that because you actually are doing a disservice to someone. Like it's like yeah. helicopter parents, yeah. right? Who are always making sure that their kid progresses to whatever the next step may be. Well, okay, but eventually they're gonna encounter something that probably you can't help them with. Yeah. And if you can't help them all the way, then they're never gonna be a strong person anyway. Well, and this this definitely bleeds into something we talked about a lot last episode, so we don't have to hammer on it here, but I think it's important is that the mistake Hank makes that I don't think is a fatalistic mistake that need be made. And I think it's not just Hank, it's like almost every character in the book, so I think it's again maybe a blind spot of Rand herself, is that It's not a dichotomy between I am going to be your crutch or you're out on your ass. No. (laughs) It's something like... But those are the boundaries that need to be made, right? It's something like calling out something deeper and more impressive and exciting out of the people around you. And it's not just his family. Like You don't really get the sense that any of the characters do anything kind of hearts and minds oriented around calling out the greatness of others they just talk about it in rational conversations and only really about their own greatness and how they've called it forth themselves and and they only see greatness in other titans of industry yeah (laughs) like it's it's so uh, greatness in any other there really isn't any kind of imagination rand uses i mean sure there is there's like a one philosopher and one concerto or orchestra artist. Yeah, there's, and yeah, there's, there's one. So there's like a couple artists who... And it's a certain kind of music <laughs> that suddenly stirs yeah. these titans of industry in ways that no other exactly, music ever has. Exactly. Yeah. So because of that, it feels like Rand found one way of convincing people of something great and then assumed, okay, this is the only way to do it. And I would say the rationality and reason part is one of the ways, but it's, it's only one and it's not the best way. And the right, best there, way yeah, is other the hearts and minds calling out the approach. So, so Hank could potentially, let's say, go to his brother who's just like, give me a job. And he's like, no. Well, and he does this. He's like, no, I'm not giving you a job until you figure out how to add value to my work. But how do you think you could add value to my work? Like he doesn't even, he doesn't deign to make the attempt to draw out of his brother something that he could bring that would be valuable, you know, in a way that a good mentor might or a good older brother, or a good someone you care about, you know, or like at work, I just try to talk to kids about things they like. And then if sometimes it'll be something music or sports related, and I'll have a lot of information and excitement that I can give to them 
about that. And that's what's missing, I think, in Hank, is the, well, he's so oblivious to his family, (laughs) so he doesn't know what's going on with them, which is part of a bigger problem of, like, the unfair and weird and almost sacrosanct obligation the term family puts on your behavior and your commitments, and it's, like, one of the last pariah subjects (laughs) is to talk about overcoming your family your familial obligations your familial obligations not because there's any other reason other than you just don't want to because you don't like them right <laughs> you right. know like that the, even that like imagine a scenario where someone's like oh your your aging parent is very poor and maybe they need your support and you're like well i hate them and i'm not doing anything for them even if you had a hundred things that your parent did to you that you were still awful be seen as just a socially you're like well it, but it's your parent you know <laughs> yeah it's actually yeah. interesting there's um like there's this idea on the internet called defooing which is um foo foo is family of origin so it's defooing defooing oh like, i don't like that at all <laughs> um if you were abused or basically realizing that a family of origin is well and it's again very randy and it's like it's not a voluntary association you didn't choose to be born into your family of origin as opposed to a family you do choose through making your own (laughs) kind of thing i guess it's complicated i guess because i like my family so much yeah i find that difficult there's a there's a barrier to get yeah there's a i guess it's like uh Maybe it's a lack of imagination. I can understand the the desire to you know create your own family. I just feel like those bonds, if mm-hmm. if done properly, are so. I mean, you of course, and I, yeah, cousins, yeah. right? Incredible, like, yeah. They're they're way deeper than friendship. Yeah, and but I do think Hank does the right thing as far as the book goes, right? Like by the end when he does say, "Get out of here! I'm not paying for anything else again." get out of my house as the narrative has been set up it's probably the right decision but the tragedy is the lack of imagination that meant that he couldn't have prevented it getting to that point by something more common sense and common hearted of like trying to figure out why his wife why his but like that's so interesting too you notice how much in in the prose rand tells us how much her characters don't understand these people. Yeah, which is something that always fascinated me about Hank. If we go into, why did he marry Lillian? We're never told, unless no. I've forgotten. But Probably. I, I mean, there's probably like a paragraph in there about right. how they met or it was a good match or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe his mother thought that she was good. I mean, I don't remember why. So she came from a good family. Maybe kind one of, thing. of our uh, listeners will, who loves this book more than we do could tell us the answer <laughs> to that question. Yeah, but I've always found it weird how his great flaw does seem to be that he's controlled by these lesser beings. And maybe maybe it's that whole, you know, you're attracted to your mother kind of like or the qualities that your mother has or, sure. or the qualities you look for in a, in a mate mm-hmm. because his mother does seem just like this kind of wretched woman. It's hard to know how to best describe her. Like she's constantly complaining to him that he's not including or helping his brother enough. And Hank 
can't understand this because he's helped his brother his whole life. Like he gives yeah, he's him, given him everything, <laughs> kind of thing. It's yeah. like, what do you mean? I'm not doing enough. I'm doing everything for him. It's like, well, you could give him a job. He's like, he can't do anything. Why would I give him a job? He would wreck my and, and like for Hank, the value of what he's doing is right. so high. Well, but and so I think that, okay, this I just realized why. I mean, not realized. This is why this kind of thing is in the book, though. It's that section of objectivism of like you can't have your cake no, and nepotism. eat it too. Yeah, yeah. So no, you it's, can't you can't eat your cake and have it. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. It's funny. It's funnily worded because the human tendency that Rand is excoriating here is Philip, who's Hank's brother. His mom says, "Well, Philip needs a job," and Hank says. Well, he's not. He he can't do anything. He'll bring no value to my company. There's no reason for me to hire him. And and Hank's mom says something to the effect of, "Well, that doesn't matter. He feels bad. A job will make him feel better. He will have more self-esteem. He'll feel like he's contributing." And Hank will be like, "But he won't actually be contributing. He'll just feel that way." And then and this is the like hilariously like weird prose that I don't understand how these two people could be related and not understand each other. Like Hank's mom's like, "Well, what does that matter?" Yeah, (laughs) right. Yeah. So the eating your cake and having it too in this scenario that Rand is critiquing is Philip wants a job, but not to like work. Or he just he wa- he wants it in the same way value. that uh, Dagny's brother wants to be president. Yeah, because the title is what's important. The, the fact, oh, I'm the vice president. He can of tell this the other company. socialites yeah. he knows yeah. about that. Exactly. Got it's, a, it's going back to that job at the, the great being, Hank Reardon. It's the being something versus the the yeah. doing something. Yeah, like, and that's and that kind of motif is maybe the one Rand hates the most. It seems like she just. Ha- she spares no words. She spares no ink on ripping apart the people who are wanting to eat their cake and have it too in the book. Yeah. Like it seems her, her deepest vitriol is saved these, for yeah, those these situations. are the people she truly despises. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I waver so much with Hank in this book because there is so much of my life not nearly as stark as it's put in Atlas Shrugged. But there are a lot of times I come across situations or people who I'm like, oh, they're not doing a very good job, or I don't think they're very focused, or I don't even know why they're here doing this. Maybe it's like, but I can cover, <laughs> like I can, I know how to solve this problem, and even though they're coming along for the ride, whatever, <laughs> you know, it's like because you only have so much bandwidth. I don't want to spend my time being annoyed at this person. Yeah. I want to spend my yeah. time making something, doing something, having fun, right? Like spending time with friends, people who do bring value to my life. So I feel like it's an opportunity cost. And I feel like Hank, part of the problem is Hank doesn't think about it. But if he did think about it, he would be like, well, I don't really care that my family are leeches because it's an opportunity cost for me to go placate them and spend time with them because then I'm not spending time where I value myself, which is you know, my mills. And so it's not even really until it takes, it, it, it's really hard. Hank doesn't start to change until his family and the government start digging their claws in real deep. Yeah. Really trying to take everything from him. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like this, the, his whole relationship with his family in the book is a good warning. I think of where Rand's lack of imagination is showing through 
in how people might might embody her philosophy in spirit, even not if in, in every detail in how they manifest their lives. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of how I feel about objectivism in general. Objectivism is a really good and interesting philosophy that Rand was not the best exponent of. And I maybe even mentioned that last time, but she yeah. just she wasn't as thoroughgoing in what it could be if you temper it in the right ways for the right people. She didn't want to temper it. Yeah, I know. She, she's not a person who likes tempering anything. Right? Well, that I think that is a big reason why it's been demonized. <laughs> May, yeah, maybe. But I think the things like, no, I don't agree with that. Because I think the reason it's demonized is actually that at its core, it's demanding more of people than anything else would. And people don't like having things demanded of them. People don't like looking themselves in the mirror and saying, well, these are the issues that I have mm. and these are the things I need to work on. They would prefer to have people tell them, oh, it's not your fault or, you know, the universe is just kind of conspired against you. And her whole philosophy is a slap in the face of that. I think like because who nuances things more than Jordan Peterson? Almost <laughs> no one. And the same people hate him. Yeah, I mean, the irony, of course, is that the kind of critiques and criticisms brought against peterson and rand are the same style of critiques that rand's villains bring against her heroes in her well that, and so well, I that's think, not an irony i guess it's a straight a to b line there and i yeah and i understand her frustration and therefore maybe lack of desire for nuance because she's tired of it She's tired of people making excuses instead of coming up with solutions. Well, I guess I still... I think you... Okay, fair enough. I think you're probably right. My criticism of her, I think, withstands that in that I just think that she didn't do a good enough job of articulating ways where it doesn't have to be as stark as her book puts it. And if she thinks it does have to be that stark, I think she's a little too out of touch to be the right mouthpiece for her own philosophy right yeah i mean we've talked about this in the last one how there's there's a whole swath of being human that she just misses mm -hmm. and which is I a think big she, part of life but i think she does miss it and i don't think i i don't think she, or if she doesn't miss it she purposely doesn't give a shit about it yeah but i just i think that's a missed opportunity Honestly, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think we're I really in do there because, yeah, I mean, just okay. Well, to bookend this end with about Hank again is that to me, objective vision still stands if Hank does a hearts and minds calling it out approach as opposed to uh, I'll just do it for you approach. Like, I don't think him engaging the people who start out as leeches because it's kind of there's a fatalism to this philosophy. It's like you're either the titan or the maggot, right? And people change. People can think their way out of things. There is, an, there is an ability to go to therapy and engage with other people that inspire you to become better. And aren't those often the stories we like the most? Yeah. I mean, but those are the hero's journey, a psychological hero's journey. Right. Which we're on a philosophic hero's journey. I yeah, suppose. but I, I guess I'm saying at least my current conception of it, I don't see a, a, a conceptual barrier between what i'm describing and objectivism right no I, so. I i see what you're saying i i mean it's her philosophy i don't know yeah but presumably she would be the first to admit that objectivism would exist even if it wasn't her philosophy yes probably <laughs> Which, yeah she would <laughs> she would assert of, that yes part of the joke anyway 
two other things about Hank, but here's the first one. And this isn't really about him, but it's something I felt a kindred aspect of it. So it's really early in the book. And I can't remember the exact context, but there's a lot of chat around how he's doing something great. And then also like, well, why are you so selfish with this product? There's this, but it's like the entire social and cultural fixation is on the final product of what he's doing. So it's like Reardon Steel, which we find in the book, he's been working on for like 10 years kind of thing. Like it's taken a lot of time. Experimenting and thinking. and So it made me think of the like artist's journey we'll call it the artist's journey or the creator's journey of all the background work and failure no one sees when you're trying to make a great thing only the finished products you know and i think this is in one sense a truism that everyone kind of as soon as you say it everyone's like oh yeah i guess so but it's like everything beautiful you see in the world someone has poured themselves into (laughs) for a long time and it's easy, I guess, to have the uh, the illusion that it's just easy for other people when they make something. Or it's like, oh my gosh, like what? How did you do this? It's like if you think about it in a, in a way, it's it's a tempering thing where you feel less bad because you're not going to be comparing yourself to a great thing someone else did because. Well, unless it's really bad and you're comparing the last like three years of your life to the last three years of their life where they spent making something, right? Like that's just an example amount of time. But I don't know if you've ever thought about the gap between how we as a culture get to ingest something as a finished product versus what it goes into making something amazing. I think I don't even think of that so much as products and art, although I, I agree with you 100% about that. I think of that as the human life, too. Like the individual life, the, the person that we get to know when we get to know another person, you start off only seeing whatever product they present to you right whatever whatever work they've done yeah uh whether that's their resume or their right. looks like from well i was thinking about this just the other day when i was at the at the gym with all of these very attractive women who were out because i do spin class sometimes right yeah. and i was like holy crap it's a lot of work to look <laughs> like that good like, yeah, yeah yeah this is not this is not something that they've just stumbled into mm-hmm. they're this is effort and energy and like commitment yeah and uh i was i mean it just impresses me when people do that mm-hmm. um but it's just not something we talk about we we ex- we kind of want it to look effortless yeah and and may, there's an there are probably elements of society that glory in that and that's kind of what hank does mm-hmm. he glories in the process in the hard work itself yeah. of getting there yeah and and that's what ayn rand is i think if we were to be like the most charitable to her is that's what she loves. Yeah. She yes. loves the people who love the work. Yeah. And the process of it all. Yeah. Not not the outcome, but mm-hmm. the work. Mm-hmm. And I think real artists, you you were the one that is, have introduced this to me, are the ones who love the process. Yeah. Well, because that's 99% of what they You're do. You're never going to get good at it <laughs> right. otherwise. Like two of our cousins were Olympic level gym, gymnast mm-hmm. athletes. And it wasn't just getting to the olympics that like so often you hear well this is what they worked for their whole life like i don't believe that (laughs) like if they hated doing it every moment along the way just because they were trying to achieve some goal they Mm -hmm. wouldn't do it Mm -hmm. i wouldn't do it you have to have more mini goals along the way exactly and enjoy the little well, think, parts of yeah, it yeah many goals like oh i want to master this particular say you're an artist this particular style of yeah, art or yeah, yeah. or i want to master this move on the on the bars right. right 
that can be your little goals. And I actually think we've talked about this sort of chunking, right? Mm-hmm. Where you take yeah. a task and you break it down into its contingent parts until you it's small enough that you feel it's achievable. Right. Because often you can look at the overall goal and be like, well, this just seems impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I find that all the time as a management style, the best thing you can ever do is go to an employee and, and if they're struggling with getting something done, you want them to get done. You just say, well, okay, let's walk through the first thing you need to do. Yeah. Or or maybe we walk through the 10 things you need to do to get this done yeah. and pick the one that, that you can do. Yeah. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. But even then, unless someone loves, not loves, but wants to do something, oh, there's nothing more difficult than making yourself do something you don't want to do. Oh, God. <laughs> like, I don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> but I do think... Uh, the artist has, to, yeah, the artist has to have that process that isn't even ever understood, and it, and a, in a sense, I find that to be the mystery of the artist. Yeah, right, because they know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when they go into the process, they and and, and even when they're performing in front of you, whether it be mm. music or even painting in front of you or or feats of physical grandeur, sure, they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's like watching hockey players give <laughs> interviews. They're like, they're not going to go into the nuances of the strategy, I... <laughs> but they know it. Pucks in deep. Like they, they, <laughs> they, they must know it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or they know it on some level that isn't conscious, but I think they know it on a conscious level. Well, actually, too. that's why it's so much fun to listen to hockey players talk to each other. Oh, because they have right. a kind of inside knowledge of everything that they're talking about. That is, their personalities come out more. I mean, obviously, sports interviews <laughs> mid-game are so stupid. These, these guys are just like so exhausted. <laughs> they're supposed to have cogent replies. Yeah. Like, Pucks in deep. We got to play hard. Play as a team. <laughs> I think they have canned lines. Yeah, they must yeah, have yeah, canned yeah. Lines. Well, no, I like all that though, David. That's really cool because I I loved your analogy to the human life is like this and i've because i've thought about this sometimes i mean in one sense this is i guess what mean what we mean when we say the wisdom of old age is that older people have processed a lot more well yeah so I, I feel that way myself and we've yeah. talked about this and i forget which ep- we talked about right 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 how as 30 somethings we have just a way better conception <laughs> of even of love and of of you know, we don't think we know it all anymore, but we definitely yeah. thought we knew it all at one point. Well, and you, the the evolution through a life too. Like I, I can't help but feel that the people I meet now in my life are getting such a vastly different Luke than they would have ten years ago. Maybe not like core values, but all of the things I've done in the interim of like let's say ten years are now just part of the operating system that they see. Right. So even though like it's maybe I did this one thing eight years ago and this other thing six years ago and this other thing three years ago, all of that is one thing about me to a new person I meet now. Which I actually <laughs> think is a good argument for why envy and jealousy are such wasted emotions. So either envy and jealousy are looking at someone and wanting what they have. Yeah. Or or it's like, well, why can't I be like that? Mm-hmm. Right? And both are ridiculous because... <laughs> One is, well, why do you want what they have without putting the effort in to get it? Yeah. But two, why do you, you can't be them. You Mm -hmm. just can't because all of the choices that led up to this moment are what make them who they are. Mm -hmm. And you didn't make those choices. You made other choices. One of my, 
One of my close friends once told me, he said, I asked him if he ever regretted getting a, say he got a bad grade or something. And he's like, well, what if I put more work in? He's like, well, if I wanted to put more work in, I would have. <laughs> I obviously didn't want to put the work in. Right. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot more to go into here because I've realized it's a much bigger vista with talking about life, not just a, something you make. But yes. I like that it, we brought that up because that's yeah. cool. That's that's obviously one of Hank's big motivations. Okay, so the last kind of little thing about Hank I think that's worth bringing up is that in the last kind of two-thirds of the book, no, sorry, the la- it, it, two-thirds of the way through the book till the end, he starts to have a lot more kind of run-ins or meetings <laughs> with bureaucrats or representatives or whatever right and they're slowly starting to try to strong arm him into doing what they want of him right Throughout. and a big part of that is you know basically taking him out compared to yeah. the other guys that mm-hmm. seem to have control over these people but they don't want to take him out because part of the whole eating your cake and having it too that rand is critiquing is that the regulators and the power the people with the power and the guns as they say in the book they want Hank to do what they want, obviously, but they want it to seem like it's Hank's idea. Or at least Hank is agreeing to all of their stipulations yes. voluntarily. Yeah. That's very important to him. And there's this one line Hank does that I loved that I think is, is exemplifies this. So Hank says, I am not helping you to pretend this is an amicable discussion. It isn't. Now do what you please about it. You need my help to make it look like a sale, like a safe, just, moral transaction. I will not help you. (laughs) I want this procedure to appear exactly as it is. You need my help to disguise it. I will not help you. And so this is like on him not towing a line for the people with power who want to appear kind and friendly to business while they're getting their way with them. And uh, I just felt like that was so courageous of hank i think that that was like his his some of his deepest heroic moments to me in the book were when he says things like that because he he i mean there's a lot of other characters in the book like uh oren boyle his kind of chief rival who's the crony capitalist basically who's getting the government um, yeah preferential treatment using the government to make profits as opposed who would toe the line right or there's a few other people jim taggart toes this line with them and he doesn't and i don't know like it's hard to it's hard to disagree with rand in that kind of motif but i think it's hard to do it in real life i think it's hard to not toe lines in real life well i mean it's challenge it's the whole you know swimming up against the current doing hard things you know actually molding a life for yourself all of these things we're not all titans of industry no but but doing (laughs) the hard thing we can all do right because if we just toe the line we're passively you know responsible for whatever evil is being done to others and it could be i mean i think it's hard for some people to think of it as evil for someone like hank to be you know used and like <laughs> yeah, they're like yeah, yeah. well he's just so rich he's just someone like that's jealousy and envy yeah but the truth of the matter is all of the great things we have in our life 
all of the things that make our lives easier and better and more bearable and less, you know, horrible in terms of suffering were created by people like Hank, not people who towed the line. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, think of the printing press. Like, they, they tried to burn them and they thought they were evil and, like, people convinced masses of humanity to tow this line that there was something wrong yeah. with the printing press. Well, and because you could print the Bible now in other languages other than latin right like <laughs> well, your control was being yeah. lost right hmm, yeah it's okay so i guess i love hank in this moment and it's you know rand talks about this too in objectivism is because he doesn't fight against and john galt does this later too in a in a, in a very heroic way but hank doesn't say okay you're an enemy. I'm going to fight you. He says, you're an enemy. I'm not going to fight you because I don't deal in violence because that's not what a rational person does, but I'm not going to pretend anything to help you out in a public relations or a public perception type of way. Yeah. Like that's the last thing that you can't force out of me. It's like, um, you can't, you know, I only have my name from the crucible. <laughs> yes, right? yeah, it's like yeah. He he could have good told, connection. He yeah, could have told good. the line, but he's like, no, you know. At the end of the day, at least this I can do. Even if you come for everything that I have, yeah, I could still stay true to my. Like, if I could, I will. I will die on this principle that yeah. this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those double standards are just so <laughs> everywhere in life. I, I, I think it's really you know? easy. I mean, it's really easy to give up. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think most people And you get do. comfortable, too. Well, yeah, but right? I mean, like, look at those crony capitalists in the book. Like, they had good lives yeah. as far as their creature comforts were oh, concerned. Well, exactly, but, like, their souls were rotten. Yeah, but so this, this is why, like, so much of the psychological inspiration to have bringing out the greatest that is within you. I agree with Rand's goal. But I think her methods are not as good as they could be, which is too bad. You know, that's all. I I get I'm very inspired with Hank in these scenes in the book. But it's like, what then? You know, like how can you get people inspired by that? And the cynicism of the regulators and the government is so frustrating. <laughs> like, yeah. like the the amount of inspiration you get out of Hank is matched by the sadness of the cynicism of the people who, because it's like, there's, there's a few characters in the book who say when Hank or another hero says something like, well, the people won't go for that. Like, that's crazy. It's like, you can't trust the people with anything. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's yeah. total paternalism. I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's no more to exhaust there other than just like that's a, a very strong part on Hank. I probably the her- most heroic I find him in the book. Although you notice though, now that I'm thinking about it, he does cave when it's Dagny's name. Yeah, that is the one that would get put well. This through is the his humanity, right? Is that he? Yeah, he cares about people. So he does sign like the legislations or clauses that take away his medal or make him seem like he's socializing so that it won't come out that Dagny and him were having an affair because yeah. he doesn't want to because he knows it's not his it's 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 not his right to ruin her name right which is why it's so powerful when which she chooses why, to ruin her and own which name. is why you know why they use it against him because they know like this is the this is the thing that people like Philip 
and Hank's mother and mm-hmm. Lillian are so good at is they find the psychological weaknesses in the strong and they prey on them. Right, 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 right. Hey, everybody. David and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. Okay, moving on to Francisco Danconia, <laughs> the not world's most charming, character. no, not, not a, a big, big character. character yeah. Words have an exact meaning. Well, not exactly, but mostly. <laughs> I get what you're saying, Francisco. Yeah. Uh, here is one of my favorite lines of the book. Uh, and I think it's a pretty famous one. Like, I've seen it quoted outside. Uh, so I think this is one of the lines of the book that's actually penetrated made its way into, into culture public, a bit yeah, more. Pop culture. So James and Dagny and Francisco were kind of childhood friends. Not exactly friends, but their families knew each other because they were both industrial families. And Francisco and Dagny got along a lot much better than <laughs> Jim. And there's an early part of the book where Jim comes up to Francisco and just starts telling him about stuff that he should do. And this is a beautiful line. Francisco says to him, It is not advisable, James, to venture unsolicited opinions. You should spare yourself the embarrassing discovery of their exact value to your listener. (laughs) (laughs) Like, maybe the world's best roast. Yes. Ever, hey? Right. Uh, But yeah, I mean... We should probably riff on that a little bit, even though it's pretentious as fuck. I love it. Uh, like, <laughs> well, it's like unsolicited the... opinions are dangerous because you're going to find out exactly how much the other person cares about what you think. <laughs> and yet there is a certain kind of person who just loves to give them. And those kind of people's I those kind of people I feel have a very low level of self awareness. Yeah, because they're not even they can't even comprehend that someone wouldn't give a shit about what they think about mm-hmm. something. Well, and embedded and baked into that statement is the kind of educational part of it is earn someone's respect before you give them advice (laughs) and let them ask you for it. Or at least say... Generally, I mean, there's only two reasons someone would ask for your advice. Mm -hmm. The first is because they actually want it. And the second is because they know that by asking you, it'll make you feel better about whatever decision ends up being made. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But at least there's some desire to have you involved in it. But if you're just giving your opinion, that's just something I struggled with, I think, when I first got into the workforce is like I was so brimming with ideas that I wanted to express them and I wanted them to be heard and taken seriously. But I had so little experience and so little practical knowledge that it was really just theories that i was mm-hmm. spouting right. more than practical solutions yeah 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 <laughs> without the context necessary to, to make these decisions too mm-hmm. right well i think your point on the self-awareness is is perfect because 
it's going to be a major shot to your ego the moment you realize someone has no interest in your opinion. <laughs> yeah, and then you're going to have a couple of different possible responses there. Like, I think a lot of people who do give, like, this is the thing. Francisco is right for a self-aware person. He's mm-hmm. Again, he's talking to the Dagnes and Hanks of the world and, sure. and flagging something yeah. for them. But for a person who actually offers these unsolicited opinions <laughs> regularly, they're going to be like, if some, if someone just dismisses them, they're going to get angry at the person who dismissed them. Well, yeah. I mean, you notice Jim gets very yeah. angry at Francisco in yes, this book. Exactly. Right. So, <laughs> and it's, yeah, I guess, I mean, part of the joke in the context of the book is how Francisco is treating Jim as if he were like Dagny, but. He has no capacity to no, be like Dagny. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I just think that line is, it makes me think. And it's it's like one of the lines of the book that is actually, I think, I remember when I read it the first time, being like, oh, yeah, no more unsolicited opinions ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ever. Yeah. Because yeah. there's also an inflated sense of your own capacity if you think you can just go tell people what they should do about something in their life. Yep. Right? So yeah. there's a, there's probably a Dunning-Kruger thing going on there. Probably, <laughs> yeah. You know? But I like how it's... Francisco's reply is both uh, a dismissal and a kind of, like, education. <laughs> yeah. If he could be received that way. It's like, yeah, don't do this, man. It's only going to hurt you. <laughs> and it does hurt him deeply. But he doesn't respond the right way. He just gets mad. Anyway, yeah. that was funny. So I think Francisco, in a lot of the book, he represents kind of, he's like a stepping stone to John Galt from our main characters. He's the he's the bind. Like, he's the reason that they learn a lot about what's going on. And so he's also a precursor to Galt, who is the main focus of Rand's philosophy, so a lot of his lines are kind of representative of that. So, and you'll learn man's mind is the root of all the goods produced and of all the wealth that has ever existed on earth, which is what you, the point you made like 10 minutes ago, right? Like if everything we love was made by somebody yes. in their mind. I love just making these things explicit. It's like, we have to figure out when we want to do good in the world, we need to have as much truth on board as possible for our decision makings. Yeah. And the the wealth creation and value creation of the world in the last 200, 250 years, like that has to be understood and taken into account for any decision we're making about and the future. And it's just not anymore. Like my least favorite human tendency, I think, is the assumption that because something is a certain way now, it will, it Inertia. always was and always will be that way. Yeah. And, like, pe- for people like you and I, Luke, life would have been terrible. I know. Like, we would have yes. lived horrible, maybe not horrible, like, maybe we would have been, you know, we, uh, humans are also adaptable. But, yeah. like, compared to how we live now... Well, we probably would have been peasants. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We would have been dirt farmers. We would have been beta male peasants. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been fun at all. Now we can be beta male middle class. <laughs> I don't know if I identify self identify as beta, but <laughs> well, I'm I'll I'll set it up for you. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> roasted. Here's the line he says to Reardon, though, that I think is what is in what I, something that stuck to me is 
you have been paying blackmail not for your vices but for your yes. virtues. Yeah, and you mentioned this in the last episode, and I love that. It's hugely important because it's Francisco helping Hank to try to realize that his family and the people around him aren't taking him down for anything he's doing wrong. It's that they're just killing him for the things that he's doing well. They are their parasites. Mm-hmm. Which is a really good philosophical distinction. Yeah. But actually, the interesting thing about parasites and the interesting thing about them is they need to keep him alive. Like, they, the, they the host can't die. No, the host can't die. <laughs> well, anyway. Okay, I want to end on the most important part because it's something I know you've brought up and I'm really interested in. So the last point I made about Francisco is he's got a line halfway through the book. John Galt is Prometheus who changed his mind until you withdraw your vultures. Um, so obviously the story of Prometheus. Prometheus gives fire to humans, steals it from the gods, gives it to the humans. The gods punish Prometheus by having I mean, a vulture every day. Yeah. But this is the part I don't agree with, and it might be a semantic quibbling about the story of Prometheus, but to me Prometheus isn't Prometheus, like capital P, the way we feel about him in culture and history and philosophy, if he does that. He's not because he can't take the flame away. Yeah, he can't. Well, take in fact, the flame within away. the myth, within the myth itself, he can't. Yeah, like the, the, one of the things that God says: once you give it to them, you can't take it back. Yes, but I guess what I'm saying is, if he could, and then he did, he wouldn't be Prometheus then. No, then he'd be some kind of like fickle god <laughs> yes. who is like yeah. picking and choosing uh, and and demanding. Now there's certain a things. there's a slight breakdown of analogy here, a very slight one, because it's not humans who ask. Prometheus liver to be eaten. It's the gods. So it's not the people he's benefiting right. who are trying to take him out. So they're kind of twisting it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Now, however, you could make the argument that the gods in the John Galt sense are the powerful who or who or the government or the people who run stuff, right? True. Like yeah. they're the gods. Well, but the ones who have the monopoly on violence. However, uh, this to me is a breakdown of the story, though, is because in the Prometheus story, the gods aren't benefited by Prometheus giving the flame to humans. Like there is a categorical divide between the gods and the humans in the Prometheus story, whereas in the real world, the government people themselves also benefit from Prometheus. Right. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> engagement. So that's why I actually didn't, I didn't like th- that part of the book. And there was another part where there's a character who's railing on Robin Hood. And it was funny yes. to me because we talked, had talked yeah, about yeah, that, yeah, how yeah. I think... <laughs> The story of Robin Hood is misunderstood because it's Robin Hood is not taking from the deserving rich, if you will. He's taking from the tyrannical rich. Yeah, she rich. definitely twists that one. Yeah. So I don't only just suck Ayn Rand's dick. I also kick it a few <laughs> you times, also too. criticize her. <laughs> yes. Okay, last point about Francisco, because it's, I, this isn't really about Francisco. It's about a philosophy, but it's super interesting, and he says it, so we're talking about it now. And I know you've brought this up. But we do need to talk about this, even though it might not be easy. The man who despises himself tries to gain self-esteem from sexual adventures, which can't be done because sex is not the cause, but an effect and an expression of man's sense of his own value. Yeah. Now so this is my favorite quote, I think, in the whole. Yes. Book, yeah. It now for, I quoted a part of it earlier. Uh, a, a rather, I guess, a contentious aspect or a, like a misunderstood aspect of objectivism and objectivism in general is like well if you're so opposed to altruism let's say what about 
the most kind of, in a sense, altruistic act, which is lovemaking and sex and the intertwining of yourself with another person for ecstasy and intimacy. Um, where does that fit? And, well, I won't say what I think about Ayn Rand's answer. I'll let you <laughs> talk uh, about what you think about it first. I mean, it's interesting because it, she's a, one of the things I appreciate about uh, Ayn Rand is she's at least consistent. Yes. Right? Right. Like, she she tries to stuff every you know round peg into her square holes and say no this is the nature of I oh man that would be a good Ayn Rand internet video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like her argument here is obviously that that sex is an ultimately selfish act and that it has no selflessness to it and when and that the idea that it is a selfless act is actually a bastardization of the beauty of what sex is supposed to be. And I, th- I I see her point because I think... Yes, I that's think, fair. I do see her point too. Because I think that if you make it into a pleasing, like a pleasing another person act, then you're not treating that other person as an equal. You're actually becoming subservient to them in a sense. However, of course, I think that you can... She doesn't treat it as a... She treats it the same way she treats an economic deal. I know, right? <laughs> right? In the sense that, you know, I'm getting pleasure because I'm awesome. And I know you're getting pleasure because I'm awesome. But you're also getting pleasure because you're awesome. And you know you're awesome. And, like, <laughs> that's why this is awesome. Yeah. I just I, – I have so much difficulty because there's no vulnerability in her world. No. And I think a gigantic part of intimacy, particularly sex, is – is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's such a difficult topic in so many ways, yeah. right? But she doesn't she doesn't want vulnerability in her world. She she kind of despises vulnerability. However, I do agree with what he has to say about men who use sex for validation. Yes. I think that's yeah. one of the most toxic and most common male act attributes out there which is getting their value from their sexual con conquest. i would i don't okay i would put it i think it's the most talk uh how to say it it's the most common of the toxic tendencies of men right so maybe it's not the mo- yeah okay i agree <laughs> it's the most common because i and i've said this in conversations with people before it's hard to overcome your biology mm. right and our biology is very much you know reproduce and you can go, go into that state and feel justified in the desire to fulfill that base desire. But it's yeah. not consciousness raising. It's not high-minded. No. It's animalistic. And mm-hmm. if we wanted it to be animals, then, you know, life would be brutish and short. But it's a default setting that's hard to overcome. And I think she's trying to justify the default setting where my argument would be, no, you need to overcome the default setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) The default setting is just to eat whenever you can because you don't know when your next meal is coming. Well, and get as much sweetness as you can. Yeah, because that's the highest nutrient. Yeah. Yeah. Now, (laughs) some of the funniest parts of the book are Dagny's thoughts about sex. I know because they're so clinical. They're so <laughs> clinical. It is. It's like a 
It's like reading a, a, a like a medical textbook. Yeah, like which insurance provider should I go with? Yeah. It's like, and then it's like, I realized that I could never be with that man again, and that was okay because our uh, minds weren't a thousand percent aligned. Now they're only nine hundred and ninety nine percent aligned, kind of thing. Like, oh, okay. And yet, in the scenes described, it's funny because her thoughts aren't intimate or vulnerable but there's a few scenes that she has with hank where she seems to make herself vulnerable to him and vice versa so it's weird how in the portrayal there is but i guess just on the uh, a reflection of your own value is in who you have sex with there's something so harsh about that in one sense you know because i think that i don't know i guess i guess maybe this is just a temperament thing i think that adults can can figure out how to negotiate sex i give i give adults maybe more credit than rand does in yeah. her synopsis of you do it that a lot though you you're a big believer in like i i don't yeah like well i think okay so there's two well, there's two parts here there's two things right the first is are we talking about physical appearance because that degrades and that disappears, right? So if it's only about that, no, I'm talking about coitus. No, no, right. But like, it's like your valuation of yourself, right? Is because the the question is like, show me the woman he sleeps with, and I'll tell you the value his valuation of himself. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're only talking about looks, that can get tricky, right? Because you can have very vapid people yeah. who are very mm-hmm. attractive. Yeah. Um, although I, I think that's an overplayed stereotype as well, as mm-hmm. I was talking about earlier. Like, it takes a lot of work and discipline to be put together, and I don't think that should be undervalued. Right. However, and, and I know this because I know a little bit of, like, a, a few stories about Ayn Rand is and her own uh, sexual escapades. Yes. And she really believed that it was kind of a mind meld more than it was yes. a physical yeah, yeah, yeah. act. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what she's describing. Yeah. Like if you Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. And maybe a little bit unexhaustively describing. Like she could have given a little more detail. No, I think I things. think she she this is maybe your criticism earlier comes into play here. Maybe she's not the best person to articulate her own philosophy around sure, this. Sure, right. right. Yeah. No, if like yeah, I mean I I, I don't want to relegate Ayn Rand's philosophy to here of like, well you only need to, if you sleep with good-looking, well-put-together people, you have a good sense of self-worth. And if they're kind of frumpy or here's <laughs> a little overweight, but here's, then you're not. But here's the thing. That is actually very common. Of like, sorry, The sp- people who, um, let's say, work out all the time and are put together mm-hmm. do see that as the most valuable aspect of themselves. And I think maybe that's part of the criticism that, that she's part of the vanity yeah of it yeah yeah that's fair that's a good point i think maybe just talking about it now it's making me realize i'm i have a slightly more like zoomed in uh a gap of intuition here with what she's talking about is that the way that she because most of the kind of sexual cogitations we get in the book are through dagny and that's interesting to me as someone who's not a woman to th- to read about a woman writing about how a woman might think about sex. Like that's it. That is really interesting. Cause it's just, you know, like categorically impossible to me. Right. And this isn't spelled out in the book, so I'm not going to hold Rand to this interpretation, but it, the vibe I get from what she's talking about is like Dagny seems pretty proud of the fact that she's only slept 
with two and then three people in her whole life. Yeah. And like part of her value is that she's been pretty chaste. Actually. And that these men have actually been only great men. Yeah, like a hundred and billion percent great men, and I've done it very few times. Yeah, and that's why I, I it's so sacrosanct. And I guess I just think in the messiness of real life, it's possible to have a slightly more diverse sexual resume than that. Well, of course, it's with, possible without being any less kind of like self worth rating. I don't know. Yeah. Um, if you take about some of the things like I, I, this is a super interesting and I don't know a lot about it, but like this whole ethical non-monogamy, people say it works for them. I've listened to podcasts of people who are just like, yeah, it's like it takes a lot of work, but it works and we can do it. It's like interesting. I don't necessarily see those people as devaluing themselves less. Well, it, I mean, I think, you know, I think uh, it's but more common throughout history, but mm-hmm. I don't like this one partner for your whole life thing seems to have been a more modern construct like for vast swaths of history you know rich men would have mistresses and that was just everyone assumed it and it was just like i don't want to hear about it kind of thing yeah monogamy made a more equality of opportunity type thing for people yeah and i think that happens a lot like we see this with like very rich and powerful people or um Mm -hmm. or even celebrities like how many celebrity marriages do you know that have lasted um there's not many no i mean well they don't make the news no no <laughs> the marriages that make it don't make the news right uh <laughs> and i guess i mean that i think that says a lot about monogamy now okay so here's what I, here's what i'm I'm going to make this directly about dagny not i mean like i think dagny makes the same point and it's not lost if she'd slept with eight people instead of three or 15 the number might be a variable, but I feel like Rand kind of makes it seem like it's the variable. Well, have you ever slept with anyone that you wish you hadn't? Yeah, but I wouldn't say that I have devalued. I I, I don't I don't think it was an ultimate reflection on my deep sense of self. Right. Okay. Either. So I can agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> like I think it's like a learning experience. But I, There's a like a oh crap I I I probably shouldn't have pursued that lesson learned. But I don't I don't feel like oh my gosh, that maybe slightly intoxicated gap in wisdom is not indicative of how I actually see myself in my life. Right. And so I just think it's, it's again, a little bit too thoroughgoing for the ups and downs of experience and learning and education. And which is why, like, I find Dagny's reflections on her own youth utterly baffling <laughs> like she was just born yeah. this kind of like titan of everything <laughs> yeah and so i think that this is maybe the most controversial and difficult to talk about part of why rand's lack of maybe nuance on these things is, is tricky for this philosophy because like this is so fucking elitist in one sense i'm not preaching you know sex drugs and rock and roll go let it all hang out and do whatever you want but i i think it's having a little bit more grace for the weaknesses around sex that people have without it being something degrading to them in their final character analysis yeah it's, but it's, I if feel you like don't learn sex from is it. just messy and like people have relationships to 
to their sexuality and to their partners and things that I don't know that you can like you can't really tell people how to feel about that. And like in her case, it seems like that's how she felt about it. And then there's other oh, people. Oh yeah, fair. And there's other people who, you know, don't can sleep with a hundred people and don't feel that it impacts them. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who could sleep with three, and like two of those people like really mess them up for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm focusing on the wrong. Variable. I think you're focusing. That might be fair. not on the wrong variable. I, I agree with. I think. I think what you're trying to say is we shouldn't let this be a defining feature of us. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think we should allow our past sexual experiences to be defining. Yeah. But in the same breath, I I want to say, well, they are. They they are, but they aren't. They're they're part of your life, but they're not. They're your destiny. Yes. And it makes it seem, Rand kind of makes it seem in this that it's a destiny thing. Like, let's say Dagny had one bad sexual experience in college, right? Like, even one. Now she's a, she's a, she's a less than ideal self-valuing person oh, yeah. for the rest of her yeah, life. Yeah. Like, oh, I agree. I, it's that just, doesn't make sense. No. And, and so I'm not saying that's what Rand is saying, but it seems like that's what Rand is saying. And I just don't think that's correct either, even if I agree with the overall kind of momentum of the point in trying to value other people and like actually find yourself in relationships and then sexual relationships with someone you want to and you do respect and you do care about in one form or another yeah yeah so anyway (laughs) that was a fun one all right john galt john galt as a character is not that interesting i actually didn't think because no, I don't think he's interesting at all. I think he's a symbol. He's the yeah, but the thing is, the the symbol that he's representing has already been thoroughly talked about by Hank and Francisco in the book. By the time we get John Galt, he's just kind of like the angel, the white knight version of it. Well, the only interesting thing about him, I was thinking about this earlier today, is that he is the mastermind, mm. right? He is the yeah, he's behind master. everything. He's the man who made it all happen. Right. And that motif is obviously very prevalent in literature and, right. and and I think emotionally interesting in the sense of the idea that there's something behind all mm-hmm. of it is a is a very it's a captivating idea. True. True. It's also complete bullshit. Yes. Like, yes. But it's exciting. Yeah, I mean John Galt honestly he exists so that there is an actual plot to this book. Yes. <laughs> Thin he, as it he, is. He's the plot armor of yes, this book. Yes. And here's what I mean. I think I was last episode. I talked about how Ayn Rand, you have said this thing 800 times already. Why are you saying it 801 times? Stop. Here's something that Galt says that it could have just been Hank saying this 400 pages earlier. And in fact, it was Galt or uh, Hank, Hank saying it. Saying, but yeah. If you weren't holding me here under threat with guns, you wouldn't be able to speak to me at all. And that is as much as your guns can accomplish. I don't pay for the removal of threats. I don't buy my life from anyone. Now, inspiring stuff. Rah, rah, rah. I love it. Right? <laughs> right? I don't buy... Inspi- but this is what I mean about... This, this, these ideas are so... They're not... Hammered home is the wrong cliche. Like, they're they're pounded into your head for weeks reading this yeah, book. Yeah. You can't here's maybe this is this, kind of funny this is to Chinese say. Chinese water torture. You could not read this book and not know what it was about. It's yeah. physically impossible. Yeah, yeah. There's no like I wonder what she was trying to say in that book. 
<laughs> what a nuanced take on life's place in the world. But he did have one line that I thought was interesting, and, and maybe it will be spark a disagreement between you and me, but whatever. <laughs> He's got a line near the end of the book where he says, "It's I think it's in the middle of his big, long speech, the mountain, as yes. you call it. Yeah. Every dictator is a mystic, and every mystic is a potential dictator. Now that is an interesting, and you can tell inspired by an atheistic way of uh, uh, line of thinking. Now, uh, obviously, mystic isn't just in the realm of religion. That can be any sort of basically mystic in the context of the book is anyone who pr- makes you promises about the world but doesn't tell you how it can happen. Just right. that it will happen. Yeah, and every dictator is a mystic, and so you know you can't help but think of. Like the Maos and the Stalins and the Hitlers who promised their people some beautiful tomorrow based on kind of like with Hitler, it would have been like the the spirit of the German people will prevail. And that's actually how it will happen. Or, you know, in in China, it's like the great, you can't, the, the utopia the, will the, arrive. The Chinese the workers... people are too amazing for it not to happen kind of thing. And actually, I mean, I went to about five years five or six years ago i was actually in shanghai visiting a buddy and we went to the chinese museum of propaganda oh and it was fascinating to see just like the paintings of chinese farmers on their tractors pushing american soldiers into the ocean you know like (laughs) just uh and it's interesting to see how like the portrayal of different peoples to try and get the point across and and then every mystic is a potential dictator so i don't know what are your thoughts on that line from galt hmm. a potential dictator at least he says potential i suppose because i don't i think a lot of mystics are just too consumed in their own imaginary world sure yeah, yeah that could be like a labeling issue where we call mystic someone who just sits in a cave for 60 years or (laughs) yeah i mean but like if if you think about like i mean that that has been a definition of a mystic yeah but there have been gurus who have oh yeah just hosed but i guess i guess what i don't like about this idea is it 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 pretends like it's making an important point within all of us as a possible dictator Mm. right yeah but within all all dictators are or all leadership to some degree right is a promise of a better future sure but i think the point rand would make in the context of objectivism this is contrasted against right reason and rationality against reality of saying Uh, look what we've already done a is a kind of aspect right like mystics don't need to so the, the idea is that someone like Galt or Reardon, they don't have to get you excited about the idea that A is A. They just have to show it to you. Right. <laughs> and I can uh, I can get behind that. I, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the context. But yeah. I agree. Like, yeah, that, that um, the possibility of mysticism or mystical thinking that can go too far does lie in everyone, which is why it's important to be able to talk about it. Yes. Yes. Because otherwise, if it's latent for too long, it can manifest in terrible ways. So, our villains, our weaklings, the people we're supposed to hate, and we know that we hate them. I only made notes on a couple of them, but I think we should start with Jim, who is Dagny's brother. And I know we've brought him up a few times. Just to reiterate, he takes a lot of he takes credit for all of Dagny's foresight with the John Galt line and all of the things that she does. 
but really she doesn't want to credit and that's why she's sustainable and he isn't right. <laughs> right like he that exact reason the process oriented way versus the credit taking way is why he can't do anything when she's not there <laughs> you know yeah it's so funny at about 240 pages into the book because up to this point he's kind of been the austere domineering titan of transportation's president right right but eventually his resentment comes out when he says about Reardon, he didn't invent ore. <laughs> Why does he get to have this kind of stuff? And this is a great line that the girl that he's with says back to him, well, why did no one else make it then? <laughs> and I love yeah. that because Jim has a relationship with a woman later in the book who he basically, like the, I think the idea we're supposed to get out of that is that Jim kind of tricks this young woman into thinking that he's something special and eventually she sees that he isn't. And just leaves him. And leaves him. And then I think she commits suicide yeah. too which is very sad, obviously, but how Jim, Jim, so much of Jim's worth is going out and trying to, con- if, I guess it's that Jim, Jim's the kind of person that thinks that if he can convince a naivete or a naive person of his worth to the world, that, he will have he, that he'll have it. And so he spends a lot of energy doing that and complaining. And I love this line though. It's like, well, why, why did no one invent it then? <laughs> Yeah, if this is so easy, why hasn't everyone done it? Mm-hmm. Because he has no base, because he has no like foundational values and ethics, he gets joy out of the uncomfortability of his so-called friends. So he like like Jim is part of the crony capitalistic group that gets favors from the government. But because he can't respect these people that he's in cahoots with because of how they are also terrible. He loves when they get the shit end of the sick, too. Yeah. So even his friends, he wants to see fail. Which is the opposite of the Hanks and the Dagnies. It's crazy, and... isn't it? But it's not uh, an uncommon sentiment. Yeah, you, you want to see people fail. You of friends who like, mock each other when they do poorly, right? Or, or mm-hmm. that's when they take the most pleasure is when they see the other person fuck up. Yeah. And I think probably it's because at that point, once, because once like Jim and Oren Boyle and, you know, the other, what is it, like Chick Morrison or their weird names like that, they all, they're not actually friends. What they are is their, their roles, right? They just play a role. Everyone in the villain encampment, I guess, of this book are no more important than whatever their title is. Right. Whereas with our heroes, their importance lies deeper than that, which is in their own minds. And yeah, and their own skills. Yeah. Because what we see with these other guys is the only skill they seem to have is to be able to navigate Mm -hmm. using power to to (laughs) fuck over their enemies. Yeah, just playing the game. They're just playing the game, but there's no no even... there's a skill in that, right? But the but it's not a skill that promotes. It's a skill that you know relies on a power outside of yourself, mm-hmm. and it, it it's something that you maybe devour one day, but it'll devour you the next day. It's like it's that old saying, you know, "Live by the sword, die by the sword." Yeah. And so, because of that, there's no peace of mind to be had for someone like Jim, in a way that there's a lot of peace of mind to be had for someone like Dagny and Hank. Yeah. When they complete their projects. There's a great line about him. He's the he's a he's not just a looter of the material worth, he's a looter of the spirit. 
And I loved that line of yeah. the people who want to, not just the people who want your stuff, but the people who want you to feel worse about your place in the world. Like that's Jim. The people who feel good because you feel worse. Yeah. Right. Like the, the, the people who believe, see, this is another, I'd say really positive side of Ayn Rand's philosophy, which is, you know, better exemplified in contrast here where you have people whose only way of winning is beating others. Mm-hmm. And that's not how Hank and Dagny operate as yeah. much as like, they believe that that's what capitalism is. Mm-hmm. It's about winning. Yeah. No capitalism is about creating yes producing and value yeah value creation. value creation and distribution yes yeah. exactly and so maybe capitalism gets a bad rap <laughs> for a lot of things and i think what people who are in often ways i think justified in their anger with capitalism is much more what the kind of capitalism is that Jim's involved exactly. in. Exactly. And I like that she decides to bring that into the fore, right? Mm-hmm. And say, Well, okay, she had to. Yeah. It's such like, a huge part of the problem. Yeah. She's like, and she hates it probably more than the people who <laughs> hate it, you know, who hate capitalism wrongly hate it. Yeah. Just, I made a couple notes on Lillian, who is Hank's wife. She's all implication and what people will think. Oh, yeah. Know, she's the empty always. socialite. Mm-hmm. And... This is this this made me laugh out loud when I was reading the book. She's more interested in catching Hank cheating than being cheated on. She she's she's she gets a bigger kick out of the fact that she caught him more than the existential and self realization that she's been cheated on. Why do you think that is? This is a harder person for me to think exists, but because I think Rand is making a trying to make a binary point. Because, I, I like the way the book is constructed, I think we're supposed to believe that Lillian has such a rotten inside and such a unbeautiful soul that she 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 realizes the social brownie points she's gonna get from having caught Hank, her husband, having an infidelity. Like, she stands to gain some social points there. And she stands to gain kind of pity and who has that deserved to be done to them. But none of it is her direct relationship with Hank. Right. So her relationship with Hank is a lie. It's been a lie the whole time. And she knows it. And he knows it. So really, the only currency left in it is how other people will talk about it and what she can get out of that. So why, that's why she wants to catch him more than she wants to be hurt she's not she's not even hurt by the fact that he's cheated on her because she doesn't really care about him on an intimate vulnerable level right she cares about him as a meal ticket yes all right or not just a meal ticket she cares <laughs> about him as a status ticket mm-hmm. it's so frustrating but I, okay like i think there are, there is a scene later in the book where she has sex with jim and it's out of pity both ways pity and and loneliness and I think that we do start to see the toll of the loneliness that it's taken on Lillian when Hank leaves her. So that the good point to take out of the whole Lillian arc of the book is maybe Rand pointing out that if you do invest in these social, implicative, socialite, what will people think motifs in your life, the dark nights of the soul are coming for you too, eventually. Yeah. They always do. The existential angst and dread of being and then being alone 
come for everyone at some point and careful where you build your house because <laughs> the sadness comes for everyone. So at least hopefully you have some foundations for when the sadness comes. Yeah. And, yeah. and Lillian has none. Right. So I actually pity, I mean, I feel sorry for her more than I hate her, but I also hate her because of how she's so like, she talks and talks and talks and talks. She's such a, she's the gossip, right? She's the gossip and rumor mill person of the book. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. And it's gossip for the pure sake of being the person who knows things. Yeah. And you know what? Um, maybe this is a, a catty thing, but it feels like, <laughs> and I mean, I'm not an expert on any of this, so take it with a grain of salt, but the way that Rand writes about Lillian feels like the way a woman would talk about another woman they don't like. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think, <laughs> so, I think you're right. Apologies all around <laughs> to all listeners out there. Okay, the most, uh, of all of the villains in the book, this is the one I think is the most terrible. And it's because he reminds me of actually, when we did Catch-22, there's a lot of villains in that book too. But I think I talked about how I thought Colonel Korn was the worst because he was smart enough to take a different path and cynically chose the dark path still because he knew he could get power out of it. Yeah. So to me, actually the worst villain in the book is Dr. Ferris. Floyd Ferris, yeah. the Science Institute guy. So on it's like page 321. He's He has a quote because I think he's talking to Hank maybe. He's talking to somebody about how people like the general public they'll see the contradictions or they're, they're arguing about it and then Farrah says the man who doesn't see the contradictions deserves to believe their statements <laughs> so it's like the people who do, who who don't uh understand that we're fooling you are the ones who we deserve to be have he's, power over he is kind of that promethean he, he's what you are i think criticizing he's the promethean who wants to take the flame away yeah who, who believes that the ignorance should be left in their ignorance because they don't deserve the flame. Well, even worse, he's the anti-Prometheus who would take the flame away. And then I, I'm trying to think of the correct analogy in the Promethean story. I have it in the Ferris way. Ferris has this other line where he says, the only power any government has is to crack down on criminals. Well, when there aren't enough, one makes them. <laughs> so unbelievably cynical. Uh, I guess that would be like if Prometheus or anti-Prometheus, the only reason for his justification for being would be to give fire to the people. So if everyone has fire, he needs to put it out with water so they need fire again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, yeah. right? So he's like taking away from what people... So it's his cynicism. Consistency is not a habit of mind, which it is wise to practice or expect out of the human race. So part of the entirety of the kind of weaklings ethos is, well, we'll say one thing today and we'll just say a different thing tomorrow. If it's what we need, expediency is more important than consistency. And then the, the, at the end of the book, they're torturing Galt, which was to me a scene very reminiscent of O'Brien and Winston in 1984, which is kind of cool. But anyway, the cynicism of the person who knows they could choose a better path, but don't want to put in the work maybe, or just want to cash in on, the short-term games of getting whatever they want out of this. Aren't these kind of the people who they just see life as a power game and it's all about, mm -hmm. you know, getting power over others and this seems like the easiest way to get power over others by leave, keeping them in their ignorance, 
you know, it's it's um, you know, the proletariat will never rise, right? Yeah. And like, and <laughs> Dr. Ferris is the fucking slimiest guy in the book, isn't he? Oh, He's described yeah. as always having these great suits, this little mustache. He never raises his voice. He's always very patient. He explains everything to Hank and Dagny as if they're children. They never get under his skin. And even when all of the other like titans of the crony capitalists, like Jim and Oren and all of them are complaining about stuff, he's always the one who's just bringing calm and saying, look, they'll give in because we have the power. So don't worry about it. You know, It's just like, I think the reason I found him the most dangerous is because he's clearly the one who can really think about what his contingent is doing and choose to do it anyway. Yeah, right? because he wants power. Like I think there's fundamentally. There's a part of like the Jims and even the Lillians and Stadler who we'll talk about in a second who like it's almost kind of like they wake up one day and they're like how did I slide into this? You know? It's not an excuse. But I think they a made lot little of it, decisions. I, I do think it is that they lack self-awareness. Yeah, they lack self-awareness and they just kind of make a little bit of a bad decision every day and every day and every day to get into the pit of hell that they find themselves in by the end of the book. But Dr. Ferris knows about the pit of hell and is choosing to send people there. Yeah. And that's his goal. Yeah. And he and he's the kind of person who would be able to send people elsewhere. But he chooses to send them to the pit because he doesn't want to make do the hard, like to me he's the kind of guy that represents the person who doesn't want to do the harder work of civilization building, <laughs> right? <'cause laughs> right. He'd, he'd rather just be a ruler. He'd of rather any... just be the king of the, the trash heap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, king of the ashes, as opposed to an actual public servant. Yes, trying to build the betterment of other people, which lives. may result in him, you know, others exceed excelling him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's why I hated him the most yeah. in the book. The other one, though, Dr. Stadler. So Dr. Stadler had been a former teacher of physics, I think, at the university where John and Ragnar and Francisco went to and was a contemporary of this other guy, Hugh, Hugh Axton, who was the philosopher there of reason. So he's he gets to get into Atlantis, but Stadler. So Stadler represents the man of the mind who then sells out, right? He yes. he yeah. he has a great mind. He's a physicist. He's a genius, but he chooses to give in to the games that the the lesser people are playing, who have the power. What's your uh, your perspective on why he decides to do that? Uh, I can't remember exactly from the prose of the book, the ex- but it just I guess it kind of seems like he he got tempted. He, he, it's a combination of getting exhausted with fighting against the people trying to take him down and the rewards he got by giving in and just the temptation of those rewards. Like he got, he gets a ton of money. He's like, he's got this great title. He's the head of the science Institute for the country. And so I, I do, I guess in a way I see him as lacking the will that our heroes have. Like the heroes, I mean, there are so many situations in the book where Dagny and Hank are having to get through every rigmarole possible and every little tripwire put in their way by government agencies, right? I think eventually Stadler just that wore him down. Right. He's like, why do I fight against it? <laughs> yeah. When I could be yeah. like the head of it. Right. You know? Right. 
But this is what's so funny is that an early line he has in the book, men are not open to truth or reason. I'm like, eh, that's not true. <laughs> they are clearly open to it. So more. It's, it's a cynicism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's a, there's a great line or a great part because when Dagny first finds that motor we talked about last episode, I think she invites Dr. St- or she shows Dr. Stadler the blueprints of it. And so he's this is like the only part of the book where he's really put back into the mindset of seeing greatness again. And it gives him a rush. Like he's kind of like, a, he he's, like he's like, like, he's, oh, like this he's excited about he it loves again. science like and and this is a line that he says that I I really felt a, a kindred kindredness, right? Or a kindred spirit too. The loneliness for an equal, for a mind to respect and an achievement to admire. And I think that this is a true attitude for people who want to see great things is that eventually you get to a point where you kind of want to just see something amazing and you want to see and you want to meet the person who made it. Yeah. You know, and I think that this is an actually huge part of like, uh, maybe this isn't true, but how? Oh, no, I don't want uh, for people like Dagny and Hank, not Jim and Oren the competition of someone else would be exhilarating for them. Like if there was another transcontinental railroad worthy of Dagny, I don't think that would make her angry. I think that would exhilarate her to meet the person who could run something as good as she did. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) Same with Hank, right? Yeah. Same with John Galt. Like that's essentially why Atlantis is happening is that they want to spend time around the people who can do these things like they can do, you know? Yeah. And Stadler is paying that little lip service to the motif of it you know <laughs> yeah so i know that feeling like yeah y- y- there's definitely times where you're like oh, i just wish i could well even part of what we're doing here is right like we like talking to people about things mm-hmm. and we want to do that so that other people can hear us talk about things and and then maybe you want to talk to us and then be inspired to talk about other things exactly yeah exactly. it's like uh getting getting a wheel going and it's just so fun it's 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 an, it is I don't I, there's no other word it's exhilarating to me when I come across a great podcast episode I'm floored I'm like oh I wish I could do that yeah <laughs> kind yeah of thing. this like, is great what is it like to have a mind that can make an episode like that that's so good and then there's just the last thing on Stadler though in near the end of the book he's beating himself up about his decisions to sell out what he knows is the right decision or the good decision. And he can't live with his own conscience. And so I think that he represents in the book what happens to you, what towing the line ideologically will do to you psychologically. Like he's he's destroyed psychologically by the fact that his mouth is saying, you know, the Science Institute, the bureaucracy, the government is right, the titans of industry are wrong, when he knows it's the opposite. Right. You know, like, well, it's that it's that living a lie, that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. That's what's going to get you every time. Yeah, but I mean... <laughs> Cognitive dissonance is almost one thing that is used to be able to live with lies. It's like worse for him even because it's conscious. <laughs> right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. That, yeah, you're right. I misused that phrase. It, it's it's not cognitive dissonance. It's living in dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and the dissonance. Conscious dissonance. Yeah. Conscious dissonance. Exactly. And how by the end he's a wreck. He's yeah. a total wreck. There was one line that I thought was funny. Okay, it's just yeah. funny. And there's this one guy... He's the head of the unions, Fred Canan. He's the only one of the bad guys, quote unquote, that isn't proud to be one. 
right, he, he's right. like, I'm just cashing in. I'm admitting it. And I and so are all of you. The difference is that I admit it and you don't. You think you're great. I know I'm not. I, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's got this hilarious line. Your intellectuals are the first to scream when it's safe and the first to shut their traps at the signs of danger. And I was like, the humanities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what better line for the general humanities nonsense we get these days, yeah. eh? <laughs> yeah. Or all of the days. I mean, the kind of support the intellectuals gave to Stalin and the Soviet Union in like the 1930s. Yeah. and 40s and even and when they just got killed yeah and even when things were cut like but like i'm talking about like the people in england and yes the, like the, the, oh, the yeah. lefties in the states when it and, had no impact on them yeah as, as soon as uh, uh the gulag started coming out you just didn't hear from these people as much anymore they weren't nearly as brave to defend that anymore yeah so i liked that line okay atlas shrugged motifs that i think it's worth either reiterating or bringing up or cogitating it again just before we finish up so it's annoying to me when people don't commit to a specific complaint so they can weasel around it. So I've always gravitated towards loving people who say something that, even if it's not what I think, there's no way that they could pretend like they didn't say what they say and it's not what they think. Right. So the commitment to a specific point... Now. I give a little grace period there of like, okay, well, people can change their minds. Maybe you're incorrect and you just think you're not. And then eventually you can be talked out about or vice versa. Right. But it's, it's so different of the vague language used so that you can't really, like there could be easily several different interpretations and the speaker can choose whichever one is the most convenient for them at any given time. You know, like right. I, I do find that deeply annoying. Well, it's just weasel words. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, it's evasiveness mm-hmm. and yeah, avoiding things that don't have a specific meaning. The synergy of our teamwork is uh, only paralleled by our cooperation. Like, right. What the fuck does that mean? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well said. <laughs> okay, I've made a funny connection to Rick and Morty. The man who uses another pity on him as a weapon, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Jerry Smith? Yep. It was interesting to me how the social issues in this book were just people not earning as much. I feel like real life is more complicated than that. When the everything starts going to shit, it's all just wages. Like there's no other issues people seem to have in their lives. As like this is not thorough well, think, enough. Yeah, she sees everything through an economic lens, but let's be honest, a lot of the social issues that exist are because people don't have money. Yes, earn. yes. But not exclusively. So Okay. No, that's not the book she was writing. Though. She wasn't no, writing. A she book. wasn't that writing that book. Yeah. If it, it again, like like we said at the beginning of last episode, if this was a book about the fullness of a narrative of what people in this situation might be going through, it's woefully unthorough. It's just inadequate. <laughs> yes, I mean it's not, but it, but it, because I don't think it's attempting to be that. Yeah, yes. yeah we can't it's totally it just time. a philosophical thought experiment on ten. 1,069 pages with some characters. Yeah, exactly. So still, I still think it's important to point that out because it's easy to say, oh, it's a novel and think maybe you're getting something more thorough. Right, but you're not. But you're not. It's a very imperfect novel. And I think we've also kind of (laughs) come to the conclusion that it's a very imperfect philosophy. Yes. Or an imperfectly articulated philosophy. But such an interesting... 
like I'm fascinated by the fact that Atlas Shrugged has had the cultural impact that it's had for a book that I think is so inadequate. Right. And so kind of, well, I, you you and I have a slightly different perspective on this. I just think it's kind of boring. Like, I think the story is boring. I I, I think a lot of the story is boring. Yeah, okay. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah, that's a better way to yeah. put it. That's fair. There are parts that are entertaining. Okay, this is something we should talk about because there is a kind of motif in this book about how everything is so isolated every man is an island Mm -hmm. francisco and ragnar and john need each other to start so there is a brethren needed well the yeah the plan doesn't work unless there's more than one Mm -hmm. person doing it right so i think that that's interesting i think that that's an interesting fact is like and it's not like Ayn Rand shies away from that. And that's kind of even what she means when she's talking about the sex parts of the book. But it's how also the quality of friends do need each other. And it doesn't... Here's the thing. It doesn't just seem for like the transactional thing that they can do for each other. But there's there's an actual care that they have for each other. But it's only available to people who are of a certain level of uh, greatness. Yeah. Right, you can't be friends with a lesser. It's a bit like, too strict in the Eddie, book, isn't it? You look it? at Eddie like you can't really be his friend. You could be his boss, which I think is bullshit. I agree. Well, no, I think if we were to actually go into the interpersonal relationships of this book, apart from the sex, in some ways, like mm. I think, I think she makes some good points, very good points about sex and about valuing yourself and that kind of stuff, but. The interpersonal relationships are garbage. Yeah. Well, they're too. The 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 lines they're, are too clearly drawn. Yeah. The, 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 life is messy. Oh, way you know, messy. Friendship yeah. is messy. You know, like Sartre said. Uh, you know, hell is other people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just I I chuckled and made the note that in this manifesto to the individual, they need each the, other. The entire plot resounded around these people needing each other and working together. <laughs> yes. This is and liking each other too, it turns out. Here's a part of the book I didn't like. Not because I don't think it's a not a there isn't a ghost of a point here, but do you remember the scene with the train that crashes? Yes. And she spends like 30 pages explaining why Everyone who died on that train probably deserved to die because of their sociological and political outlooks in the world. I was like, that seems a little too harsh. <laughs> Don't you think, Ayn Rand? But isn't this whole book a little bit too harsh? Um, there are parts that are hard-nosed, for sure, and tough as nails and and really kind of unsentimental. The train scene was the only one where I felt it was a little bit beyond the pale of what we might hope for. So it's like, I'm not disagreeing with the part that a train, if properly unmanaged through all of the kind of idiosyncrasies that it was, becomes to be poorly managed by, couldn't crash. Obviously that can happen. Yeah. What I didn't like was the tenor of how every single person on that train was in one way or another described as being someone who contributed to that well, train like, being like, poorly managed. Yeah. So it didn't matter that they it's died. It's like blaming all of the Russian workers for Chernobyl. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, did they play, did they all play some small role? For sure, probably, right? But 
but it's you know someone has to have be responsible mm-hmm. it, it was just kind of like like whatever it was the 30 or 40 people who died on the train were all kind of like these weird activists for anti-capitalism yeah so they got their just desserts well, that was, basically I mean, that's she, I mean this is a revenge porn again yeah. right because it's <laughs> yeah. like oh look you know i'm so right and everyone who's against me Ayn Rand, nope. objectivism and the whole point of your book stand without you kind of gleefully putting these people to their death. Yeah. <laughs> but, she, you know, you got to give her her fun every now and again. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. An encapsulation of the bad guys of the book. They weren't fighting over what to do. They were fighting over who to blame. And then this is a, I think John Galt says this line about the looters or the leeches or the people who want something for nothing. They want approval without standards, tribute without contents, honor without causes, admiration without reasons, and love without a code of values. So, you know, we've talked about this for almost four hours now, and I'm still, I still don't really know how to summarize my thoughts on this book. (laughs) Do you? I guess all I would say about this book is kind of what I said in the first episode, but I'll try to articulate it better. I think that this is a great mental exercise for a mature mind. But I think one of the great dangers of this book is it isn't usually mature minds that read it. (laughs) It's very impressionable minds. Sure. And because of the way that it's written and because of how, like you said, it pounds it into your head over and over again, it can become... Uh, a way of thinking. Mm. And if it becomes a way of thinking, then you better listen to Luke and nuance <laughs> a lot of these things and understand <laughs> that this is a very imperfect articulation of a way to live. Yeah. I think I think you should want to be independent. I think you mm-hmm. should want to take responsibility. I think you should love the process more than the, the result. Like, yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in here. There, I think we should hate those who use power to manipulate and oppress yes. whoever they're oppressing, mm-hmm. whether it be the poor or the rich, as mm-hmm. crazy as that sounds. Yeah. But she doesn't do the, the right emotional job yes. of humanizing mm-hmm. this. And, and I, I think it can be humanized without losing its potency. Yeah. I think so, too. That's a, that's a good... I think we're probably... I, I love that it, the conversation went this way because I think we're actually in very much we agree about the issues with the book because, like I mentioned at the beginning of part one of this, I actually think this book's net impact on the world is extremely positive, and it's I'm very glad it was written. It's good for culture. I guess I would set it up like this: is that when I kind of read through the basic skeleton uh, structure of objectivism. I can't really see anything wrong with it. But when I read Atlas Shrugged, I see a lot of it wrong in the way it's applied to this book. Right. So I just feel like the way that she's expounded her theory of objectivism in Atlas Shrugged is woefully inadequate, which is, you know, we've we've hammered that point home, but it's important to realize is that the emotional and the social parts of life that are just totally missing from Atlas Shrugged are completely not there are part of what makes life worth living also it's kind of like rand thinks in objectivism reason is the only way to live whereas i see with her tenets of objectivism reason is there but also with grace and kindness and compassion and thoughtfulness and reciprocity and 
not but, just. But again, tempered by reason, because I think she does make the valid point with Hank hmm. that we can't allow others to, you know, use our strengths. Yeah. Use our virtues against us. Yeah. Well, I guess part of the way that it's weird in the way that her kind of heroes talk to each other in the book is that it can only be cashed out if they can consciously articulate the value that they're transacting with each other in any given moment. Yeah, that's the problem. (laughs) Whereas, like, like, if you actually imagine really talking to someone in the way that, like, Hank and Dagny talk to each other, they wouldn't want to talk to them at all. It's like, I, I care about you, Hank, because you care about your work. Well, I only care about my work because I know that you will care about the fact that I care about my work. <laughs> like, it's, there's this, yeah. this weird circle jerk of patting each other on the back by realizing that, that person is someone who understands how good you are at doing your own thing. And it's like, it's just not, it's not enough to get to, at hearts and minds, I think. Yeah. And so that's why I am so... I can't really say what I think about Atlas Shrugged because I don't think it's a good piece of literature, but I think objectivism is a really important philosophy and we don't have a better book for it. So So this this is is the one we we get. (laughs) So I do love her philosophy, even though I don't think she, it's not, I don't think she represented it badly in Atlas Shrugged, but I don't think she represented it as good as it could have been. And maybe that's because she didn't care about the things that you and I seem to care about. But that just means that I think that she's a little bit incorrect about her own philosophy then. Because I don't actually see the incongruencies of what you and I are talking about in objectivism. But she maybe does. Right. So I mean, it's too bad that we don't we couldn't talk to her about it. Yeah. I'm sure she would have arguments. It at would least. be fascinating. Although I have seen some um a few of her interviews have made their way to YouTube because I think she lived until like the eighties. Yeah. And so there are some uh, video yeah, um, I should watch those interviews of her when, when she was a little bit older and she kind of talks like that old school person who very clinical and academic right. and lecture based so it's it's hard to know what you might humanly get out of her but then and then because it's not kind of filled out in the way you might want you gotta I don't like to psychologize people I can't help it because that's what people do. Right. Yeah. We have to think about what's going on in other people's minds. Like, I wonder if she ever got, I, I, I wonder if she ever got lonely and had the dark nights of the soul too, that her version of objectivism wasn't enough. I think that's impossible to imagine that not happening for people like you and I, but I do believe that there are people that that does not happen to. But people who aren't psychopaths? Yeah. Just, I think there are people who, who, believe what they believe and they just live according to that and that's their rules and they don't worry about it yeah maybe but i still i wonder what if loneliness ever does creep in because i think loneliness can i don't know maybe some people just never need another person yeah i don't know but that would be it's hard to imagine but i guess we have to try so yeah i mean i i I can't actually really sum up my thought on this book this is like the first one where i don't really it's so big and it's so long and there's so much to it and there's so much I like and so much I think is crazy that it's it's such a hodgepodge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's such a hodgepodge it, it, book. It, it is a, I mean, it, it feels like a hodgepodge of a book. I'll put it, I, I guess I'll put it to you this way is that this maybe is the first book we've done on this podcast where I don't love it, but I know it's important. Ah, that's a good way of putting <laughs> it. You know, yeah. like I'd, I'd say... East of Eden is important and I love it. 
<laughs> you know, Crime and Punishment yes. is important, and I love it. Yes. Same with David Copperfield. Or, or Gatsby's, you know, you don't love it, and you don't think it's important. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you convinced me otherwise. Okay. <laughs> but Atlas Shrugged, it's okay, and it's important, is how I feel about it. Yeah. So. I, I would agree with that assessment. I, I don't think... Uh, I mean, I just go back to what I said at the beginning. I don't think she can write a narrative. No. No. And it's hard to read an almost 1,100-page book without a narrative. <laughs> it feels like you're reading a textbook. It does, yes. So make sure if you've never read Atlas Shrugged, you never do. <laughs> just honestly, just if you want to know more, four hours send, us an, about send it. us an email and we'll write back about yeah. it. Like, don't read it. <laughs> anyway. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I feel like the world has been on our shoulders this whole time. And now we've shrugged. <laughs> this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>